I wish sexuality was more useful. Um, that is as it is, uh, you know, I think of sex or when I see, you know, talk to patients in this space, it's like when they go to have sex, they put on serious face, you know, they can't talk too much because they got to do the thing. And, um, you know, the, uh, however they think they need to interact to be a good lover or whatever that may be. Thank God that is such a limited perspective on what sex and sexuality is. You know, it's not uh, in the past, right? Just for reproduction. I think we're beyond that. You know, we're at least to um, it's important for most romantic relationships. That's great. <laughs> you know, don't, don't dispute that. But we're not yet to the point of saying, and, you know, it's that response is useful. It's useful in the world. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. We explore the fields of neuroscience, integrative medicine, anthropology, optimal psychology, systems thinking, and existential risk. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. I'd love to welcome everybody back to our latest episode of Homegrown Humans, where I get to check back in with a researcher and academic, Nicole Prousey, who I feature strongly in Recapture the Rapture. I consider her one of the bravest and most uh, innovative researchers in the realm of sexual physiology, psychology, and healing um, that's potentially doing work today. So the last time we got to chat was offline in preparation for research for the book, probably a couple of years ago now. And we're now getting to come full circle and actually get to have a conversation that we get to share with others. So Nicole, thanks for making the time and welcome to Homegrown Humans. Thanks so much. I'm happy to talk about where we've gotten and where we might have overlap here. Yeah, and, and so just to establish uh, context for our listeners, um, you were a, you know you were at the Kinsey Institute. You did your doctoral work at the University of Indiana. Is that correct? Yep. And then also had uh, appointments, postdoc appointments at Harvard and at the VA. And then you went to the West Coast, and you did some work. With, this was at UCLA. Is that right? Yep. And then sort of found the increasingly shrinking walls of, the, of your field, of the discipline, which I actually hadn't really realized until going back and listening to some more of your interviews and podcasts of just kind of just how much that was a shrinking iceberg to be on, uh, particularly in the United States, and how many of your colleagues had ended up decamping to Canada, to Australia, to <clears throat> Western Europe, where research and IRBs and things like that were more amenable to doing this kind of research. And you actually ended up stepping out of sort of institutionally affiliated academia and starting up your own think tank research project. Do you want to just speak speak briefly to that experience? Sure. And I can even add a little bit there just with some recent news. The So I had a project I really wanted to do that involved two people touching each other that my institution at the time said, absolutely not. You know, we could not get it through the boards. Uh, I got some funding to help study that and they refused the funding. And I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, this has got a writing on the wall. It seems I have reached the end of what I can do at university. And so I took the grant funding and started my own laboratory. 
wasn't really a model for doing that. So I kind of had to cobble it together and figure out uh, how to get space, how to insure, how to work with still university IRBs to make sure I had proper oversight. Got all that cobbled together. Uh, was able to do a couple of studies under that. And uh, actually just recently have rejoined UCLA. <laughs> so. Oh, wow. So, the, so you're, the, you're the prodigal daughter. I have returned. And so my uh, plan moving forward is I do still think some of this is too hot to handle on campus. Um, so I'm doing some of the work still as a part of my LLC, keeping that off campus uh, as I encounter blocks, but still within the institutional setting, you know, I'm excited to have those collaborative opportunities again with other scientists. And so it's Uniquely American, though, to your point, uh, most of my colleagues who even trained in the U.S. moved to Canada afterwards because the, the funding climate, the, the violence issues that we have here uh, don't seem to exist there um, or to Europe. Yeah, and sometimes they originated from Europe, came here to train, so they were just going back. But other times it really is we have a uniquely oppositional environment in the U.S. to this type of research. They they do not want it done here. And so I'm finding ways to do it anyway. <laughs> well, I mean, this is a bit of a nerdy sidebar, but I am curious as to what was your sort of life and reason for being like, how did how did it work when you went when you when you sort of you basically decoupled your your career and your research from academic institutions right because there's a very standard playbook there right you you, you get published in peer-reviewed journals you get a bunch of citations you go from assistant professorship to tenureship you keep the monkey the monkey chain going you write your grants you get your funding and the more of those things that you do the higher your status is within that institution etc and on the one hand you were fast tracking through that space and then you stepped out. You're like, hey, this just looks like this, this path just kind of pinches out. It cliffs out. It doesn't go. Um, what was your experience like in, your, in, in the kind of quote unquote wilderness years? Like, like, like <laughs> you know, on, on whose behalf did you feel you were doing the research? How did funding institutions see you and perceive you? Was it, was it liberating or alienating or little bits of both? Like, what was your experience there as far as like, I've done all this work. I've, I've earned my credentials. I'm here to, to advance the field and yet you're also sort of in a in a in an eddy or a pocket of, of your own i very much wanted to continue the research that's important to me i have thoughts about where i wanted to go next i had already you know funding offers for projects i was excited about i'd written them because i was excited about them but I also knew that I needed to do things within the rubric as much as I could. So that means continuing to publish in peer-reviewed journals. That means continuing to have federal oversight of my research. And what I discovered was some really nice partnerships with a few different institutions, so universities in the U.S., that were very happy to collaborate with my LLC so that the actual work that made them nervous, you know, so somebody uh, touching the genitals or somebody masturbating to a climax, was done on my site, not on their school campus that's going to make their donors nervous or that's going to uh, cause them consternation. So those agreements, you know, when we would work on some of these IRB approved as uh, so institutional review board or ethics oversight uh, approved projects, we usually would just have the actual work done at my site. And it ended up being a great partnership. So the schools, the universities were less nervous because, you know, I was off on my own. Um, kind of shouldering the the weird stuff. And uh, the trade-off there, of course, is I was fairly isolated. 
you know, I didn't have the protection of a large institution around me. And that was problematic for other reasons. You know, I had lots of threats for the work, um, you know, people that want you dead just because of what you're studying. And uh, it's one thing to get death threats when you're sitting at an office at a university and have people to report these things to. It's quite different, you know, when you're running your own shop and you're responsible for other staff members and you have to worry about them. And you know, does this affect my research participants? So uh, there were lots of things to navigate there that made it worse. You know, that's part of why um, returning to that setting has attractions. Uh, that as I feel more protected, I feel like my staff are safe, safer um, than when I was more isolated in that way. And so I think that's just the, the trade-off, you know, is wanting to do things as much by the book as I had previously to be sure that the work would be accepted, that, you know, we don't do anything and start, you know, not having IRB approved studies or start publishing stuff on a blog. You know, I really wanted to, uh, to keep everything uh, as was as much as possible, because even though there are obvious problems with that model, and many people have pontificated on those issues, it is the accepted uh, path forward. And I'm doing enough. <laughs> it's a problem that's outside of that path that I don't need to, uh, to fight all those fights. That's kind of how mm -hmm. I felt. I really wanted to be able to focus on the work as much as I could. Mm -hmm. and, 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 I, and I absolutely look forward to getting into the meat of both your kind of overarching perspective on human physiology, sexuality, and healing, and, and even some of the terrain uh, that I got to cover in the book, um, you know, featuring you and Helen uh, Fisher as well. Um, but before we drop into that, I'd, I'd love to just kind of, you know, hear any of your thoughts on kind of the, the cultural landscape that you're navigating, because, you know, reading your work and talking with you, you're very, very straightforward. You're remarkably, you know, effectively buttoned down and, you know, rigorously professional. There's nothing sort of that I experience as flamboyant or controversial or edgy about what you're doing. It just happens to involve below the belt biology. And you, you know, you've alluded to it and I, and I literally, I deliberately kind of veered, veered around it with half a sentence, right. Of, you know, that you've, you've had cultural blowback, but I mm -hmm. then concentrated on your comments on actually folks within the field, the kind of sex positivity shaming, right. And how that was kind of a, a new, crypto puritanism but but I, it feels like you've ruffled feathers on all sides of the political spectrum and and I, and I was curious as to where you felt the most heat like the, the 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 first place you would think to is you'd be like oh it would be like anti-pornography anti-sex and pleasure mm -hmm. alt alt conservative probably not even alt I think they're burning capitals down I think this is probably like more more fundamentalist traditionalist uh, mm -hmm. conservatism but you were also getting this kind of like, you know, almost like a wave hitting the, the jetty and then pulsing back into the ocean. You were getting this weird backlash from anti-porn crusaders on the left as well. Is that right? Yeah, they formed some strange partnerships that a few folks have written papers about. And I'm now doing some research in that space myself, having experienced some of it, where I do think the core group of those folks are religious uh, individuals in the U.S. It's overwhelmingly religious groups that are advocating against this. But I think where we started to butt heads was they started to make scientific claims. You know, so rather than just saying, you know, my religion opposes masturbation, you shouldn't masturbate. That's hard to argue with. You know, that's your First Amendment. You can, <laughs> can do what you like. Uh, sexually speaking, but then they started to say, you know, we want legislation against X, Y, or Z. 
especially in the pornography space, because it's unhealthy, because it's been shown to damage the brain. And those are scientific claims that are not true. So we ended up butting heads for that. But there are a number of different groups who oppose pornography for a variety of different reasons. And they happen to kind of meet in this one uh, unique space. So the papers written about these groups often highlight kind of the strange bedfellows aspect, you know, like feminists uh, working with these religious groups who oppose all kinds of women's rights. <laughs> but on this one issue, they have some agreement. And so the feminists shut up about uh, concerns about abortion to be able to work with these people. These people shut up about, you know, their uh, other beliefs on abortion, you could say, or, you know, uh, expectation of women staying at home so that they can uh, fight together on this one particular area. So I think that's, uh, you know, those have been some unusual partnerships. And then there are also some folks who are trying to profit off of it. You know, so they're selling their treatment, um, their app in a lot of cases. And if, you know, pornography is not addictive or if it doesn't do what they uh, want to claim against the science, well, then I'm the enemy, you know, because there's the scientist who isn't helping us sell our product. So then they come into the picture and that's a more recent addition. So I think, you know, it's a combination of like religious conservatism, capitalism in the U.S. Uh, and these strange bedfellows who started kind of working together to shut down science that doesn't agree with their ideologue. Mm. Well, and I think there was a there was maybe an article maybe like a month ago in the New York Times. And it was sort of that question as to whether sort of were the second second wave feminist right, right? <laughs> that, that sort of sexuality is is imprisonment and you know and the kind of the yoke and the ones who are who are explicitly anti-porn, versus the kind of third wave. And correct me if I'm mangling any of these these you know these these uh, indexes, but um, the third wave pro-sex, anti-slut shaming, sex positivity, age of Tinder, millennial hookup culture, which is anything goes and it's all good and no one should feel bad about anything they choose to do wave and then a number of those third wave feminists at least as reported by this particular i think it was a professor writing about her class was like oh no we were sold a bill of goods i i thought this was going to be empowering i thought that this kind of loosening of any of any shaming period um would would lift us up but actually weirdly i feel more exploited and lower self-esteem, et cetera, than ever. So what, what's, I mean, obviously your head's down, you're in the lab, you're looking for empirical results, but what's your sense of the pulse of the broader cu cultural conversation that, you know, your research, you know, often gets either co-opted or even weaponized by? Yeah, I think it's acquired by both sides at different times um, so that, people who are looking more for the sexual freedom, you know, that is anything, anytime. Uh, I think, I don't know anyone who actually says quite that extreme, you know, the anything, anytime, often it's um, kind of caveated by uh, sane and consensual. So the sane idea being things that don't risk, don't risk death, don't risk health, you know. Um, so promoting condom use when it's appropriate. Um, but I think, you know, there the challenge is there are some real reasons to be concerned there. You know, it's not like uh, this is um, sexuality is just hedonism and uh, just characterized by uh, pleasure and connection. You know, there, there are things there to be concerned about, but it's very easy. Um, you know, I think often the way conspiracies are started is there's some kernel of truth there. You know, if there wasn't, it'd be difficult to build anything from it. And so I think sometimes they'll pick, you know, one a sentence out of a paper and 
you know, oh, this is, you know, now how things are. Um, it's like we have one sentence in a paper that's been uh, quoted probably thousands of times saying, you know, we're telling children to watch pornography. I like, never you know, would say such a thing. Um, but, you know, it's, it's useful in their rhetoric to say, oh, you know, disregard all the concerns here, or you should overweight them because we have a, you know, a, a child pornographer in our hands, you know, or something like that. So uh, it's difficult for me to tell exactly like which wave, you know, has done what with these different types of data. My sense is just in general, there's a cultural shift towards realizing things need to be data-based, you know, that there need to be scientifically grounded decision-making and to do that, when the science doesn't agree with you, you have to misrepresent it. And so scientists have been put in an unusually kind of sensitive spot from that perspective. You know, it's we see it most clearly maybe with the climate scientists. We're just a tiny field. So mm -hmm. most people don't know that this is happening with us. But yeah, it's a, I always say you think climate scientists have problems when <laughs> you meet the sex researchers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, fundamentally, although even these days, even mathematics is getting you know, weaponized in the kind of social justice conversations, even the study of Greek and Latin at Princeton, you're like, wait, that was normally totally off limits and total snoozeville and no one could. But if it was like reading lists for literature, you mm -hmm. know, or grand arcs of history, everybody has an opinion on those two. Everybody else is like, oh, chemistry, that's not in my pay grade, you know, but everybody's got an opinion on books and stories. And it's not, and obviously everybody's got a, an opinion on sexuality and morality as well. Hey, it's and, like everyone wants to, no one wants to think they're dumb at sex. You know, so yeah. Next <laughs> yeah. Well, so so um, and, and I'm not sure. Did you have a chance to scan the the chapters that we sent you? I know yes. it was short notice. Okay. So so we can we can jump into that. But in the meantime, I'm sort of dying to know what the results have been. You sent on the citations for a couple of your most recent papers, mm -hmm. and the last time we spoke, it felt like it had been forever since I had first heard of you doing that. Um, uh, clitoral stimulation study and the potentials of, you know, substituting um, either just straight stimulation or climax in a woman for pharmaceutical interventions for pain, depression, anxiety, insomnia, a host of physical and psychological ailments. And the last time we spoke, I felt like you were keeping your cards super close to the chest. I think it was pre-pub and you're like, I'll tell you later, <laughs> you know, you can see this stuff later. So, so fill me in. Um, what has your research over the last few years? Um, what are some of the kind of, what, what are the top three to five, you know, insights, conclusions, hypotheses, validated or falsified? What, what, what have you been finding? Oh, gosh. Uh, so the biggest is probably our large study of 250 folks who actually came into the laboratory uh, where we paired them off and about half of them were romantic partners, the other half were not. And they did this clitoral, manual clitoral stimulation protocol that is referred to as orgasmic meditation in some circles. It's a little misnamed because uh, they typically don't reach orgasm and they're not really taught to meditate. <laughs> the, uh, the basic- it was, it was really good branding. Let's yeah, <laughs> it was like- <laughs> And so in that study, they're uh, stroking the, beside the clitoral shaft for 15 minutes. That's the bulk of it. Mm -hmm. And the only instruction is just to feel. And so we did a whole series of assessments before and after that. And uh, the things that we published from that so far are things like uh, looking at the connection 
between that people feel between one another before and after this protocol. And I always say, like, when I <laughs> I'll preface it, like, you're going to think, well, no kidding. <laughs> this is not exciting stuff, but you have to show it first. You can't just assume. it. <laughs> so uh, what we found was you're going to be shocked um, that the feeling of connection between two people increases after a you know non-communicative <laughs> genital stroking practice of 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. But what I think was more remarkable in that paper is we found that the folks who actually did not have a romantic connection experienced more increase than connection between them. And that's not supposed that's to happen. More, more increase than stable partners. Yes. And okay. you know, so we speculate as to why that might be. But the bottom line is a lot of therapists would say, you know, you're not supposed to have sex with strangers. It's wasted sex. It's risky sex. Um, which is ridiculous. Like people are doing it for some reason, you know, they're motivated by some benefit and more important that we understand what those benefits may be than saying, oh, it's just bad. I judge you for your acts. And so that, you know, to me was one step is we often study connection and the uh, studies of loneliness. You know, so we have this culture where we feel uh, often disconnected and that's shifted a lot, obviously with pandemic, Mm -hmm. uh, kind of how we connect with one another. But still that feeling you know, that we're not close to someone you know, or we don't share space and experience, why would you not want to capitalize on a sexual experience you know, just because it happens to not involve a long-term relationship or be embedded in that kind of a structure? It looks like it's beneficial anyway. You know, so- or the, the Dutch in their typically blunt fashion, you know, public health, like get a fuck buddy for COVID. Yeah, so lucky over there. Um, <laughs> So, right. So we need evidence, though, to support making those kind of recommendations. And now we have it, you know, to say, like, this procedure was helpful, even for the people in our sample who didn't have a romantic connection. Now, now, now the first place, I mean, the question is, 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 were you able to isolate a mechanism of action? I mean, my first guess would be increased saliency and novelty seeking in the dopamine reward loop, kind of a la Sapolsky's models. I mean, were you able to capture any of the kind of neurochem? stuff in real time to to explain that the, the positive delta so between novel partners and we're recording electroencephalography of both partners in that case or eeg which is brain waves so the neurochemistry or like dopamine etc uh chemicals we did not record so we uh you know there are lots of ways to understand the mechanism potential there and my sense is there's quite a lot of research in social um, for both romantic couples and friendships that simply novel, exciting activities done together, increased closeness. Mm-hmm. And sex is a novel, exciting activity to do together. I feel silly saying it, but this is a largely rejected idea by a lot of therapists and a lot of scientists, you know, that Wait, which, which idea just that sex is another activity that is both novel and exciting that you can do with someone. Mm. <laughs> you know, it can be a recreation. It can be a, um, you know, they often, I always think it's funny in those papers studying that topic, they'll give examples like, Oh, go do jet skis together. Go to, those are also fine. <laughs> like how else could we boost romantic right. connection? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> roller coasters. Yes. <laughs> the roller coaster example. I was like, your on, own donuts. Say yeah. Say it. <laughs> Um, and so we, but we need to do that work. You know, you have to do the research to support someone saying that. And so now there's a basis for that. And with the EEG, those papers are still uh, under review. These, as you know, take forever to trickle out. 
Um, but I can speak kind of in broad strokes, you know, what we're looking at is the difference in the experience between the person providing the stimulation and the person receiving the stimulation. Uh, we don't have them swap. There are all kinds of reasons for that. So, you know, it could be gender related as well, because the person receiving stimulation always had a vulva. The other person uh, was usually male, but could vary. And uh, so we're looking at the extent to which the person providing the stimulation is having a more effortful experience where they need to focus and concentrate and monitor the situation where the person who expects just to lay back and feel the entire time uh, is able to uh, more have that just experience where they have a higher alpha, which is uh, sometimes interpreted as cortical idling, you know, or having a, a relaxed wakeful state that may look a little bit more, more like meditation. So I'm really interested in that state because, uh, you know, I think of mindfulness meditation and the benefits that can come from that as something where you have to have a practice where you sit and you direct you to your breath or to a mantra and try and produce this state in yourself. Well, uh, that can be difficult for people who have wandering minds, uh, who may not find that that pleasurable. And, and wait, which end of the stick is this? Is this the receiver or the stroker that the, you're describing right now? Yeah, so the receiver that looks a bit more like that uh, to me in the EEG signal. And so you know, if we can provoke that same kind of state in a sexual experience, why would we not use that? That is, this is something that's very difficult uh, to ignore. So the attention is a bit more overwhelmed. It's easier to capture attention. It's pleasurable to do. So in contrast to a meditative practice that may be difficult to kind of establish a habit around, I think this is something people would be more likely to engage in on a regular basis um, and could have side benefits. You know, if you have a partner to do these things with, you know, could that produce some uh, connection that reduces feeling of loneliness? So I just see a lot of potential for this kind of a, a procedure, if you look at it that way, and, mm -hmm. um, you know, for using sexual stimulation to improve and get the health benefits that you might see with any kind of meditation practice. Well, to say nothing else of just like relational intimacy and closeness, which for most people who are attempting to live anything yeah. resembling a stable pair relationship, particularly with kids and domesticity and all the grindy grindies, mm -hmm. that the capacity to help each other feel better seems like a no brainer. Huge. Yeah. You know, like yeah. when you when you decouple it from all the drama and all the narratives and all the romantic fantasy projection and all that, you're just like, hey, you've got seven thousand neurons in your magic little spot. I got eight thousand. And when we wiggle them together, we both feel awesome. In fact, we probably feel better. And if we do it right, amazingly super awesome. And we might even, you know, we might defrag our nervous systems and we might even enter some form of peak state or consolidation or, you know, homeostatic reboot of brainstem level, you know, you know, physiology, let's do that on a regular basis, you know, as just pure, you know, sexual hygiene. Well, and if you can remove some of the performance demands, because that's often, you know, part of the tripping point in established romantic relationships is, you know, am I going to want it when they do? And well, now this is, divorced from that, you know, I don't have to be wet. I don't have to be vasocongested. I don't have to be, you know, this uh, kind of a protocol that orgasmic meditation removes that demand. And mm. so it resembles in some ways the old sensate focus. I think of, you know, Masters and Johnson, 1960s kind of sex therapies. And I really like it about that. I think you know, you don't have that expectation. Like, are you going to wait for my orgasm? Are you going to do this thing I like or not? Um, mm -hmm. No, this is a procedure. We have like a very safe 
kind of container to have that facilitate that kind of experience that reduces a lot of the demands where the conflict tends to arise. Mm-hmm. And and then I remember, and I don't know if this persisted. So you said one of the one of the criteria that you were checking was mm-hmm. relational closeness that it went up actually in novel partners even more than in, in existing ones. Uh, what were the other both sort of hypotheses you were testing and then also metrics you were tracking? So you said EEG was one. Yeah, then- we had a whole series of cognitive tests pre-post looking at like frustrative experience. How good are you at tolerating frustration um, where we had a very difficult math task <laughs> they had to do before and after. Before and after, um, but not during. Not during. <laughs> Uh, a persistent vigilance task, which is your ability to keep your attention on something. We often think this has been impacted by you know, current society and like uh, having too many things going on at once. So we look at that uh, performance before and after, and then a whole series of other kind of self-report experiences. And it's largely that last set that we've gotten out the door, you know, that we've published about. So like, you know, another one is looking at folks who've had a, a sexual abuse experience. You know, so they may have had molestation as a sexual molestation as a child, often struggle to experience uh, pleasurable sex or report sexual dysfunction. Again, in this particular procedure, those who'd had that history actually report more sexual arousal in this context than people who didn't, which is, to be clear, not to say it's a benefit to have been molested. It's more that in this context, when the sexual experience is kind of safe and contained and you know what's going to happen next, it appears to kind of release that ability to just experience pleasure. You know, you're not needing to monitor and like, is this going to be safe? Is this experience going to be okay? Um, that is, I, I know what's going to happen next. It's all structured. And so we think that's why uh, we found that result. So yeah, we're, we're still very much in the middle of looking at a lot of those data. It's a very rich data set. Um, hmm. 250 is a huge lab sample. So uh, I expect we'll continue to publish in that space. Mm-hmm. And did you ever sort of track down that idea, which I think was maybe prevalent in that orgasmic meditation community, which was, you know, something resembling after, you know, after three months or some sustained period mm-hmm. of repeat practice that a woman might undergo some palpable shift in physiology personality? you know, so less anxious, less depressed. I think they, they assign, they ascribe the term a turned on woman, which, you know, could mean anything, mm-hmm. but, but in this instance, you know, effectively sort of, you know, what, what was it, all the benefits of alcohol and Christianity and none of the side effects, which was Aldous Huxley's, you know, description of Soma, right? So, so all the benefits of Prozac, you, you, you know, uh, you know, and, and landmark with none of the side effects, right? Like, like, w- did you notice or were you even doing anything other than, you know, a singular episode where you saw any kind of positive psychological shift over time for people right. experiencing yeah. that neurochemistry physiology repeatedly? Uh, so our main limitation is we chose in a first study to work with people who were fairly experienced. And what that means is they had a restricted range towards the high end. You know, most, you had to have done the orgasmic meditation at least 10 times before to be in our study. Um, But most people had done it far more than that. And they'd been involved in that community for quite a long time. And so it's difficult for us to see a shift. Um, Mm -hmm. We did record that anyway. You know, we note how long our participants have been doing this or how regularly and those kind of things. Mm -hmm. So we do, we do check that. Um, And there were some areas where we said, okay, this could be a relationship, you know, that's relevant for longevity, but that's absolutely next step. Is to try like, and- like big five ocean test neuroticism whatever it might be 
Yeah, we collected those, but we just had such a restricted range of very experienced omers that the next step, I think, is to train people to do this uh, practice and see how they change over time. Okay, neat. And then, and then, wait, you, you, were, you were describing something a moment ago, and I think, oh, I, I know what it was. It was the recipient state, the alpha wave states, uh, that, that sort of sense of, you didn't call it rumination. What did you call that? You called that state something. Oh, um, see, relaxed wakefulness is a common way of describing it. I don't know if that was it. Yeah. And so I, I just wonder if you've come across, and I mentioned him in the book as well, but Brad Sigarin, who's, I think he's a social psych guy who's done that work on the BDSM mm -hmm. community. And he's yeah. actually, they found some difference in states. And the reason it came across our desk was because they, they ascribed to the, what do they call it? Uh, it's tops and bottoms, but it's like dominate doms and subs, right? So, so they said that the person performing the actions would go into a sort of more alpha wavy flow state, because like you said, it required some manual dexterity and some focus and some concentration, and that would send them into a sense of flow-based mastery. And that the sub, the person receiving the experience would often drift off into a dreamy subspace, which was a potentially different and lower frequency. So it was interesting that they tease those apart. And I'm just wondering if that research or data set um, could be something that, you know, you could sort of basically hit a bank shot off, you know, like it exists, it's there, they've got a thesis that they've at least established within their protocols. And does it lend any insights or perspectives? It onto what you're doing? Yeah, with the kind of things that we find. Um, and so I don't know in their case exactly how that was recorded, but mm -hmm. uh, those, those sound very consistent with the kind of things we see. And uh, it's such I think just an unfortunately new and sparse area. I just want more people doing the work in this space so we can see, you know, um, kind of how far out this goes. And the we have some couples research, you know, folks who look at things like handholding and um, the ability of a romantic partner to reduce our pain experience. Um, those are great, you know, good start. <laughs> and I would collaborate with some of those folks. But what happens when we notch that up? You know, if we can increase the intensity, uh, if we add a sexual component um, to things. So I'm also very interested in, there's a whole uh, line of research that's specific to these things called C-afferent fibers that are uniquely stimulated when you stroke not slow, not fast, moderate, <laughs> like in between, uh, anywhere on non-glabrous skin, so hairy skin. So this is essentially what we think of as erotic touch. And uh, how you know, like if someone's just, oh, you know, add a boy, you know, kind of a quick coach's rub or something um, to something very slow that might be massage based to something that you're like, oh, this person's flirting with me. <laughs> you know, oh. that, that's kind of how you get that uh, perception. And the C-afferent fibers uniquely innervate the brain in areas that are associated with social interaction. So I think this is part of how we get that cue to say, oh, this is. So, this so, so is wait, so, so wait, so there's a certain rate or speed of touch and then yes. that is picked up by you said the c afferent fibers so there's is it an, that's are those neural or are those epidermal it's epidermal and so those okay. get transmitted into these social areas and so to me it's kind of like um you know to the the kink research and then our research and then i'm looking at the folks doing hand holding stuff and i'm seeing like <laughs> the slow we're kind of marching towards each other i think we're eventually we'll find overlap and that seems like you know that's another step uh, where they look at kind of this social, they call it social touch. You know, and I'm like, mm -hmm. you're flirting. <laughs> that's what you know. That's what that was. What they were studying. 
Um, but that's you know, fascinating. And, and so wait, so special, so unique fibers in the skin <laughs> and then with a specific EEG signature as well. Like, is it, does it get rooted to like social center of the brain and like something's happening here yeah, with another yes. person? So I haven't seen that work done with the EEG, but with fMRI and that's where they okay. evidence. Yeah. And I love that. I was like, that's so cool, but it's not just the genitalia, you know, it's not unique to having your you know, vulva or penis touch that there's something in the skin that also detects like this, this is sexual, you know, something about this is hedonistic or it you know, has a bit of a different flavor. Um, I love that. And maybe hmm. kind of a way to join from the research that's coming from this other direction, you know, with uh, couples and, you know, kind of how we make marriages better. Totally worthwhile study, but not <laughs> so much what I'm interested in. <laughs> I mean, that almost feels like the, the ASMR stuff. Is that right? Or AMSR? What is the, the whisper talk oh, stuff? Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure exactly. Yeah, I've seen. But is that, is that in like an auditory version? Because I mean, it almost always makes people like wiggle and squiggle, you know, like, ah, like, right, he's giving me goosebumps. Like there's some affect right that I know, comes eroticized uh, asmr and i'm i haven't seen a study that kind of describes to my satisfaction like why that is because mm -hmm. capable of eroticizing lots of things and some people are studying that you know trying to uh, develop sexual responses to images of a penny is the classic uh, old study in that space so i wonder with asmr if there's something uh, prepared to it like there is some way in which we're predisposed to experience that as erotic, or if it's just a preference that because we've been told, you know, that uh, this has some erotic quality, we start to ascribe that. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I wonder if it's even just the idea that normally for you to receive that, if it's not just like on pre-recorded YouTubes, right. It, in real life, you would have had to have somebody intimately in your space. Yeah. Right. Near your ear at low volume, which might be the equivalent of those C afferent fibers but but acoustic i just wonder if there's kind of a, a proximity priming there could be that's a great mechanistic idea hmm. so so now let's now let's kind of get into i mean because i'd obviously love to pick your brain you, you were one of the um the kind of icons for me as far as like who's out there in the field holding down a body of research and how do these maybe connect right so obviously um in those couple of chapters on sexuality you know and to your point about getting tons of blowback right i took one chapter on respiration everyone's like yay breathing tell me about it <laughs> you know <laughs> you know you i had to i had to dodge music same thing like music is cool everybody loves music this is neat too you know and then you get into substances you're on a few more minefields um but sexuality, I was like, there's no way in hell I can cover this in a chapter, right? I have to spend one entire chapter just snipping all the wires to the bomb, you know, and then a chapter maybe getting to say, you know, what I think might be forward looking. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the ones, and I think you and I might have, um, I think we might have chatted shortly after I actually had this real world encounter with Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS, where he had shared that idea that the MAPS, the MDMA PTSD therapy they've been doing had been boosting vasopressin, prolactin, oxytocin, those kind of things. And that in some of their papers, they had ascribed the closest analog in the rest of waking life to be the post-orgasmic state. Um, how does that track with your own research? And does there feel like, because I mean, I was like, whoa, that seems like this crazy, you know, plausible bridge between that neurochemical profile, whether it's derived pharmacologically or psychosexually to get, you know, with a partner or solo, um, and the potential benefits of healing trauma and integrating people. So what, what's, your, what's your take on that sort of accidental 
cross-pollination of both fields, very different, landing in that same backyard. Yeah, it seems like they share some features and also clearly distinct in some others. So, um, for example, it is a, a common misconception that orgasm floods the system with dopamine. Dopamine doesn't increase at climax. Uh, it actually it does not. No, okay. <laughs> it commonly. Uh, it's to be fair, not been studied many times, but the times people have looked in blood plasma and cerebral spinal fluid, uh, don't find an increased post-orgasmic. It's more associated with the sexual arousal. Uh, so kind of the proceeding state, um, what okay. does spike at that time is vasopressin, mm -hmm. um, which I find hilarious. It's a somnolent. We, we think in this case, so that's why people tend to conk out <laughs> after they have sex. Uh, so I thought that was just, I thought that was just guys. Is it, is it uh, equally distributed? So it's equal, uh, and it's a whole side research I could go into about women in climax that we recently studied. So, um, I think a lot of women are not having climax when they think they are, <laughs> I've got some physiology to, to back that up. So, um, so, you know, the vasopressin thing is really interesting, you know, cause I'm interested in developing that for getting folks away from somnolent aids pharmac mm -hmm. pharmacologically, you know, what could we do? Yeah if we understood kind of the trajectory of somnolence with the vasopressin bolus at climax. Uh, so during sexual arousal, one of the strong effects uh, we've observed is there's a strong suppression of ghrelin or hunger hormone, which could be why after you have a climax, you know, ghrelin comes back online. You've also got a bolus of vasopressin. And so your body kind of has to make a choice. You know, am I hungry enough that I'm going to get up and go eat, uh, feed myself, move around, or am I so tired <laughs> that the ghrelin coming back online is not enough to keep me from falling asleep, which I think is why people have very different experiences. Sometimes after sex, they'll say, you know, I'm hungry or horny, uh, <laughs> sleepy as the case may be after. Well, and where, where, where would the smoking of the cigarette come in? Because that's typically an appetite <laughs> suppressant and nicotine, unless you're, I think, super habituated to it is a stimulant. So what yeah. are people doing there? What is I that? Don't know. I, yeah, I don't know any data to speculate how those two might map on. I wonder how often that's the case these days, but man, that was, that was in every movie. That was like Donald Sutherland and Jane Fonda <laughs> in, Clute, in Clute, you know, like you, re you remember all those, those Great classics. Universe, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. So, well, so, so let, let's keep going on this then, because um, I am curious as to how, how and if, so you, you were just, you know, you were correcting some misassumptions, uh, both about uh, dopamine, vasopressin, those arcs, relaxation. I think Ariana Huffington, you know, famously a few years ago when she kind of was thumping the tub for sleep stuff, she said, you know, orgasm is nature's ambient. And obviously, right, ambient is whacked and completely disrupts people's neurochemistry. And obviously, if, if a simple self-priming can lead you into, you know, somnolence, great. Um, what about some of the potentially deeper healing aspects that the MDMA research is showing? You know, that sense of safety, satiety, connection, trust, the ability to explore emotions. I mean, maybe, I don't know if there's correlation here, but even what you just shared about the orgasmic stroking, the idea of closeness to a partner, intimacy, right? Any of these things, um, how far down the road of being able to establish, you know, good old Marvin Gaye sexual healing, um, <laughs> right? As, as a true modality, um, what, what, you know, what do you see in, in contrast to the uh, MDMA research and what are you kind of, what, what threads are you following of your own? 
Sure. So I think you mentioned in the uh, text from your book, some of the mystical experience things that people report with drug taking. And um, you know, we have those anecdotally, but they're not nearly as well characterized in sexuality. So understanding um, where some of those feelings of disconnection uh, and reconnection come from, you know, so that's the kind of uh, out of body. And uh, people have speculated about uh, the extent to which sensate focus uh, those exercises where people do progressive touching with a partner to try and kind of reestablish an intimacy or discover new pleasure areas, um, like maybe able to foster some of those things, like an ability to relax into an experience and to um, just feel sensation, you know, and maybe uh, disembodied sensation. I, I just don't know, you know, with sex kind of uh, how common those uh, types of experiences may be. And if they're beneficial or problematic for good sex. I don't know. It sounds like they should be good. <laughs> from, well, 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 well those, those are the macro ones. Those would be truly like boundary dissolving, ego dissolving, you know, accidental or intentional, at least in Jenny Wade's book, Transcendent Sex, she specifically sussed out, you know, naive practitioners. So her sense was, I accidentally stumbled into a non-ordinary state via sexuality and typically didn't know what it was and need, and was too embarrassed or, or, or self-conscious to even share it with my partner, which is, you know, a, a, a clearly a, a sad missed opportunity. But what about just on the micro level? What about on just neurophysiological discharge of accumulated stressors? Um, are, are, you are, are you seeing that? Because I mean, you know, like the most of the MDMA PTSD studies are not like full send, shoot the moon, there you are in the heart of a loving, compassionate sun god, you know, and, and you were one with everything. It's much more like, hmm, in fact, they've found that I think it's uh, 85 milligrams, maybe even 120. They found that actually um, lower dose MDMA was actually more therapeutically valid than their, than their initial threshold doses, because it appeared that the sort of the person was, you know, not just pie-eyed and, and, and grinning. They were, they had access to the material, the therapeutic material, and they were sort of able to take it off the shelf of their memories. They were able to discuss and discourse, and they were able to kind of work with it with higher efficacy. So are you seeing anything kind of down at that side, that side of the fence, not full-blown mystical sexual healing, but actually just kind of, you know, I would say, yeah, neurophysiological psychological. Yeah, our sense maybe closest along those lines is just looking at the kind of ability to tolerate intense experiences, right? So kind of a key symptom or component of PTSD is it's uh, things that uh, aren't perturbances to someone who's not having that experience are just intolerable. You know, you, you can't uh, have those kind of stressors around. And so uh, sexuality, sexual stimulations or in the climax are uh, these very intense experiences that uh, happen to be on the positive spectrum of things. And so our speculation was, you know, if uh, part of PTSD is this affective flattening. So to keep yourself safe, you know, if you have PTSD, you say, um, you know, I need to cut off emotional experience because I can't go there. I can't be that low. I can't be that scared or that down. Um, it comes with losing the positivity as well. You know, often it's like, I also don't have joy or ecstasy because it's safer to just stay in this very flat space. Mm. So my sense is the sexual experiences kind of give you the ability, you know, to have this safe, intense experience where, you know, to your point, you can maybe access 
some of the things that are on the other end of that spectrum, the very unpleasant, intense uh, memories or things that had happened in a space where, you know, there's generally pleasure, you know, in the, the state. So it doesn't feel dangerous, perhaps, uh, then to talk about or experience those kind of things or re-experience as you're trying to work through them. Uh, I don't know of any direct evidence uh, for that, but it makes a lot of sense, you know, that this may be, uh, that sexual interaction may be a way of getting past that affective flattening so that you can have an experience, you know, an intense emotional experience that's not frightening, that allows you to work through something that otherwise, you know, you, you can't discuss. Mm. And then what about what about the sort of capacity? Because I think, again, uh, Rick Doblin had mentioned this. I mean, this is congruent in the broader field of memory research, but just that idea of memories aren't static. You know, we're forever formatting and reformatting, rewriting, overwriting them. Um, is there the capacity in that, you know, let's, let's say sort of optimized and resourceful post-orgasmic state. Now, not that many people do this, but, you know, what, does it seem plausible to you that in that state you could particularly revisit sexual traumas, although, you know, obviously any other would, would potentially work as well, and learn to rewrite or overwrite your narrative relationship with them from a more resourced state? And is that potentially a way to effectively kind of lighten the burden right, both in your physiology, you know, and your memory of past, you know, past adverse events? My guess is it's probably not post-orgasmic. It's probably the exact pre-orgasmic. So part of what we're interested in with orgasm physiology studies is what we think is a a missing phase that's not been well characterized. As we think with um, sexual interactions, you know, we get aroused, then we get more aroused and more and more and more aroused until blammo, we have a climax and some resolution. Uh, What we've been seeing in our physiology studies is that, yes, there's arousal, uh, increased heart rate, increased breathing rate, uh, everything they expected and have always talked about. But then when you say, okay, try and experience a climax, there appears to be a periorgasmic period where that physiology completely shifts so that uh, sympathetic nervous system tone actually decreases. Um, we see dropping galvanic skin response, for example. Um, so wait, 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 and which, which phases? You said pre? Peri. So Perry. we're finding this kind of new phase uh, that I think has been overlooked because research never follows people all the way through, like just never does. And uh, so it turns out when you instruct people to start to try to have a climax, the physiology shifts, like remarkably so, you know, to the point we thought our instruments had fallen off when we first started to see this. We're like, what the, you know, what is happening? Did they shake it off? And they're like, is your thing okay? They're like, oh yeah, we're doing great. Uh, So I think the climax itself is really just a resolution. Uh, And so we see the brain start to come back online, online after that, uh, you know, our kind of functions come uh, back and accessible to us. I would do it in that periorgasmic period. I think that's where the remarkable shift is. And so when you say peri, you're saying around, but in this case, prior to. Is that right? Very highly aroused state approaching climax, I think, is when the brain starts to. um, So one of the theories about climax is part of what triggers it is a lot of synchronous brain firing that's not safe in normal states because that's a seizure. (laughs) You know, that's a lot of synchronous brain firing is a seizure, maybe not in the case of climax. And if that's what triggers it, then you really need to, if you think evolutionarily, you need to limit the period in which you're exposed and unable to respond adequately to stimuli in the environment. 
Um, so that's the classic tiger approaching. I need to know that he's there so I can mm -hmm. run away. Um, well, if you're in a periorgasmic period, presumably you're in a safe space <laughs> where you can have this mm -hmm. experience and be checked out for some period. And so there's a nice kind of evolutionary potentially uh, explanation there as well for some uh, unique uh, phase there. And so to me, I think it's not actually post-orgasmic. I think it's the periorgasmic okay. that most strongly resembles what some of the um, drug interventions may be uh, trying to capitalize on. You know, it's this okay. state where they're um, still very activated, whereas afterwards, I think they're, you know, coming back, it's like, all right, gotta go back to work, you know? <laughs> okay. And, and so sensory loading, and I would imagine sort of imaginal narrative vibrancy would probably be at their peak in that stage as well, like maximum kind of suggestibility, impressionability. That sounds very reasonable. Okay. Well, well let, let, let's, let's keep going then. So if this is kind of the realm of present tense, singular people, you know, trauma relief healing and its role, you know, basically the realm, the role of sexual fitness potentially in just overall health and resiliency and adaptiveness. Let's, let's make that evolutionary leap, right? So the, the first chapter on sexuality, right? I, I started with that story of the blue lagoon and that, the goofiness of, right? Of, of hominids figuring out how to put our bits together. The profound, um, you know, basically just evolutionary and adaptive priming and incentivization to get us to figure that out, which is actually a rather obscure act, you know, compared <laughs> to like stuffing things in our mouths and eating things or, you know, tasting things or whatever babies do, right? Um, and then all of the sort of, unintentional backlash and tragic comedy as all of those impulses play out through the, the arc of our adolescent to, you know, menopausal or senescent lives. Right. Um, but then, you know, to tee up the thought of, you know, most, most of our listeners will be familiar with Terrence McKenna's um, stoned ape theory. And it's beginning, you know, a bit, a bit more airplay lately with the psychedelic Renaissance, the idea that some early access to typically fungal psychedelics, et cetera, were a key part of waking up humans. And I just kind of, you know, again, working backwards from some of your work and then getting into Jeffrey Miller, who I believe you did that UCLA study with, as well as Jared Diamond, which is just, just a funny drive-by. He wrote that book, Why Sex is Fun, which was actually not that fun a book to read. It was a surprisingly dull book with a cool title. Um, but just making the case, hey, um, we humans are absolute aberrations from almost every other species in the animal kingdom, and even and especially our nearest primate cousins, and that what you were just describing of the periorgasmic state, the, the potential for that really rare and novel cascade of neurochemistry, the fact that we have frequent and regular sex out of ovulation, that there's frequent female orgasm, that there's permanently large breasts and buttocks and, pe and oversized penises as signaling mechanisms, that there's all these things that we do that virtually no other animal you know, on the planet does. What is, what's your take? Um, on the, the the horned ape hypothesis versus the stoned ape like do you do you what would be your sense is is any of that divergent sexual behavior in homo sapiens possibly um co-arising with or causal um with higher states and stages of consciousness oh i honestly hadn't considered those questions and that's something i'd probably have to think more about to be fair um but i i see that as like um how much of it is social, you know, what is, um, that the sexuality and that evolution has something to do with, you know, how we're valuing the things around us. And is it, uh, like related to 
just wanting to be able to manipulate the own, you know, our own physiology. Um, so I think about like, what do I know about interception research, you know, and how we've come to be able to tell what's going on in our bodies or not. Is it a way of feeling in control of, uh, is, is what a way of feeling in control? Uh, like is developing these sexual experiences. So uh, having women have a climax, which we still don't know why that's there. (laughs) Why, Uh, why do we pursue that? Why is that present? Um, What's the, what's the benefit? Um, And so, so so have you, are you really not even down to a short list of your most reasonable hypothesis? I mean, wasn't there something like upsuck theory or additional blending? I mean, where where are you on that? Why do women have orgasms? Uh, currently I'm more on the byproduct theory, uh, and there are plenty of folks who will disagree with me on that. So byproduct is the idea that, uh, orgasms weren't especially meant to exist in women, that they're a byproduct of having evolved from the same physiology that men, uh, did who need to be able to ejaculate and have some motivation for pursuing ejaculation to reproduce. Um, that seems like the most likely to me. Um, we just got lucky. Okay, so I, I I understand why you, you get all the blowback, right? Because because you basically you take away everybody's fun, including the anti-porn crusaders. You're like, nah, sex addiction is not really a thing, right? You know, and 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 so the but the, now the question here is, um, well, I mean, I, I'm I'm just fascinated by where you come down on the whole novelty of human sexual patterns of behavior, right? Because you know. Because yes, you can say everything's an accident of biology for sure. And in, in, you know, writ large across the animal kingdom, yes, it could have just been, we were zygotes. One of them ends up with a penis and that needed to work that way. And the other one got most of the nerve endings and the neurological wiring, but didn't have the same, you know, adaptive need for it. And on the other hand, human females do have orgasms and do have sex outside of estrus. So what is your sense of how we got to here? Because I mean, we really are a novel cul-de-sac in the animal kingdom. And we're not the only ones with opposable thumbs, but we are apparently the only one, and we're not the only ones with tool making. We're not the ones with a bunch of things, really. We all, you know, there's that joke of like, every time somebody has started a, you know, nature channel special or a book for the last hundred years of like, man is the only animal who dot, 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 you know, like a decade or 50 years later, they've had to change it. All right. But it is, I think it is fair to say that um, our sexual patterns remain, you know, remarkably distinct um, other than blind accident. And, you know, and we are arguably the most self-conscious and we deploy the most energy over the longest time in raising, you know, raising offspring and, and a whole host of other things. Do you have any sense of the connections between those two realms? I mean, maybe the distinction between the kind of drive or incentive and motivation. So we often make this distinction of why are you having sex? And it could be for these internally endogenous driven reasons that I want to feel pleasure. I want to feel this person touch me. I want to have a climax, whatever, you know, kind of falls in that realm. Whereas usually when we talk about sexual motivation, that's, you know, I want to reward my partner. I want my partner to stay with me. And uh, these may sound like they're gender divided, but I don't mean them to be, you know, either gender could have that uh, either motivation potentially. And so I, uh, I wonder if that the, 
you know, outside of estrus uh, experiences, for example, are more reflecting our ability to our ability or interest in uh, engaging in sexually motivated behaviors for complex social reasons. You know, that is, it's not. Uh, I don't have this endogenous motivation necessarily. I've got lots of exogenous, uh, you know, reasons and rationales for wanting to have that type of connection. And uh, you know, I could we could speculate as to what that is. And there's uh, Cindy Meston and David Buss. I think had a whole you know thousand and one sexual motivation uh, things that, in their book that have been cited. So um, we just have so many reasons for engaging sexually that have nothing to do with getting off. And uh, so it seems to me there might be a lot there to explore. Well, and, and did you track um, that book, Sex at Dawn, when it came out? Was that something that... Uh, I'm familiar with it, but I haven't yeah, done anything special with it or the author. So. <laughs> okay, because I'm, I'm just curious, right? Because, because there's been that kind of, there's been a wave of like, we're chimps or bonobos and like, like, yeah. like and actually, you know... Um, Neolithic women were lusty and non-monogamous and all this stuff. And then it came agrarians, boo, and the attempt to control fertility and, and, you know, certainty of offspring and all that kind of stuff. And, and obviously that's the realm of, you know, sort of paleo sexual politics, which, which can be forever speculated on. But I think the reason that book landed, even though most of my colleagues in the field of anthropology kept it at arm's length, we're kind of like, yeah, kind of, sort of, not really. Um, you know, it obviously hit a nerve because it was basically permission for a bunch of horny polyamorous these days, right? So, so it was like, cause science, cause history, we get to go get busy, you know, cause that's the way it's always been. Um, what do you, what is your take on that? You just, you, you alluded to lots of basically tangential or pro-social reasons to engage in sexual acts, sexual activities that aren't necessarily specifically rooted to immediate gratification. On, on, a, on a physical, you know, erotic level. Um, what's, what's your sense of, I mean, so if, well, actually, you know, and interestingly, you've also said, I think a bunch of women are, are misguided about their orgasms. So sure. on the one hand, like Sex at Dawn and some of those books would actually say, hey, women were, were empowered and they were, uh, they were not slut shamed and they were, they were actually kind of running the table back in the day, including vocalization, including frequent multiple orgasms, including the ability to have multiple partners, all that. And on the other hand, you're saying, yeah, but you know, I think a lot of women are missing the boat quite literally. Um, what, what, what's your sake of that bridging those two worlds or, or stories? What's really going on? There's uh, been a lot over time, uh, to your point of research on, you know, consensual non-monogamy and all the structures it entails. So that's everything from open to poly, uh, swingers, uh, I love that old 70s term, <laughs> to uh, promote the discussion of. And so certainly we talk a lot more about that than we ever have. There's a lot of discussion about it. But what I find interesting is the studies over time actually don't find that people are engaging in those relationships types any more than they had in the past. And I find that- I mean, just, just sheer, sheer demographics, there's not, there actually hasn't been an uptick. Yeah, that they, they appear to be stable. So despite, you know, our recent, fairly recent um, obsession or interest in these uh, non-monogamous structures that they're not being widely adopted. Certainly some people absolutely do and have them stable over time. I don't think there's any debate about that, but um, I, I think it's interesting that the still primarily strongly pair bond, maybe serial, serially so, um, has, appears to be pretty robust 
you know, it's hard to bust up <laughs> even with the more acceptance and openness to those types of things. So yeah, the thing with the women's climax and uh, openness to those type of experiences, I, you know, part of what we were finding is from a physiological perspective, you know, we're trying to document uh, how orgasm actually unfolds or occurs. And we thought we were just verifying exactly the timing and then come to find out, you know, half or so of the women we were testing weren't actually having a physiological climax when they reported that they were. And so then the question is like, well, what was that? You know, I don't think they're lying to us because they know we're in a lab. <laughs> we have measures on them. I believe they think they actually are. Uh, and that from a physiologist's perspective, they're not. And so that. Oh, so, so, so what's that? Is that is that? Cosmo did us dirty when we were teenage girls and got the wrong signpost. <laughs> so my colleague and I disagree about the interpretation of this, but that's my interpretation is I believe uh, the education is not uh, good enough that uh, women expect a series of rhythmic contractions in their pelvic musculature. Like guys know they have visual feedback to know when a climax has occurred. And for women, they're told, oh, it's warm, it's fuzzy, you feel a, a rush of pleasure. And so they say, well, I felt that, I guess that was it. <laughs> and, well, um, I mean, do, do you have, do you ever hook them up with a Sibian or a rabbit, you know, and say, see you in 30 minutes? Like, <laughs> do you ever, do you ever give them a, you know, a hyper-stimulated override to yeah. what they had experienced as, 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 you know, as a sort of, you know, stretching the Overton window a bit, like. So yeah, we used uh, primarily the magic wand in our research. So that's the okay. kind of standard. So it's not like the intensity wasn't sufficient. And occasionally we'll have participants who will differentiate and say, oh, well, you know, I didn't know. I just reported, you know, my mental climax. I didn't know you wanted me to report my physical climax. And we're like, excuse me? <laughs> like we didn't know we needed to differentiate. <laughs> There's one. <laughs> uh, you're messing with our data, man. Um, so I think my guess is assuming this continues, you know, in the next 10 or so years, there's going to need to be a lot of rewriting of our understanding of how orgasms work. So, you know, we tested many women who said, you know, we're multiply orgasmic and we're like, they're not having a climax like at all. And so, so, so it was waves of sensation that they might've been experiencing their body without. And what do you isolate as the telltale go no-go for actual orgasmic climax. Yeah. So we've got a highly specific signal for physiological climax. That's eight to 12 contractions that occur uh, starting 0.8 seconds apart and increasing in latency to their termination. Yeah. There's <laughs> very little, uh, you don't get part of that. It's reflexive. So once it starts, it doesn't stop. Like it's a very nice physiological marker and we just have never observed it in men yet. Um, but we observe it in a lot of women that they are reporting uh, climax experience without this kind of telltale um, uh, phenomena. And oh, well, wait, now you say you've never observed the telltale orgasmic signal in men or you've no, no, never no. observed men thinking they have when they haven't. Exactly, the latter. Hence, patriarchy. Sure. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, I mean, I think, um, well, I mean, there's also that question that comes to mind is both John Lilly's early research, right, with, with neuroelectric stimulation of brains and, and teasing apart erection, ejaculation, and orgasm, but at, as distinct neurological, you know, destinations and prompts or primes, but are you basically saying that in your average dude off the street, those still come bundled together? 
they rarely dissociate when they do it's usually due to medication and guys you know that's what we know and so my uh, collaborators interpretation of our female data is maybe women have just dissociated those processes and so they're having that mental thing without the physiology without the you know equivalent ejaculation experience so that's the alternative interpretation and i don't know which is going to win well, and, and I know I asked you about this last time because I was about to write about it, but, um, and, and there may not be any research since, but the aneros, right, that idea, that prostatic, the sort of peristaltic prostatic massager for men that with sort of involuntary muscle contraction has been doing some combination of prostatic stimulation and vagal nerve stimulation in men that practitioners in that specific community have been reporting as a super orgasm which they have they have expressed as non-erection or sort of whatever it depends but it's, it's non-specific on erect or not and non-ejaculatory but can be waves and waves of incredible you know arguably at least as they report the most intense experiences the most intense pleasure they've ever had um would that yeah what's your take on that like 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 is that because i mean obviously for the women you're holding some sense of like hey you might have been socialized into thinking a thing's not a thing mm -hmm. but for these guys they're post the certainty of direct stimulated response and they're finding their way into some other cascade of sensation yeah. um and I mean, and, and I think there's, you know, there's been those studies of, and I don't know if this tracks with your research, but of women being able to, you know, with spinal cord injuries and those kinds of things, being able to reroute their orgasmic response through vagal nerves or potentially other pathways. What would be your hunch that these guys are doing? Are, are they finding a way to decouple those three responses? Are they, what, you know, are they hotwiring the vagal nerve to do something else that's also possible for women? And does that shed any light on? The women who would swear blind they're having multiple climaxes but according to your measurements on it very well could be that they've trained themselves to identify and be able to dissociate the different components of that experience and this is again where i would love to be able to do the research on them you know it's getting the time and resources because that's ultimately how we're going to come to understand these things you know we have to get the sensors on them and uh, you know, questionnaire research is great. We need it, but it's done. Like we need to stop asking and we need to start measuring because people are not uh, experiencing what they're reporting when we put sensors on them. And so I just think those data are very, very limited utility now. I need to, you know, I need to be able to look at the contractions and look at the time course and the brain responses, you know, throughout the entire <laughs> kind of sexual experience. You know, we're there. It's time, uh, past time <laughs> to try and characterize some of these things. So you're basically saying we're unreliable narrators of our erotic lives. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes that's to our benefit. So, you know, I'm also a licensed psychologist and I always say, if a woman tells me she has a climax, I don't say, well, but did you have the contractions? I'm like, great, good. We don't have to worry about that. You know, <laughs> that's, um, I don't question the experience when it's, uh, you know, a matter of helping someone or trying to address sexual issues. It's more as a physiologist, if I want to identify health benefits associated with climax and I'm interested in vasopressin, then I need to know if you had a climax or not, you know, because I need mm -hmm. to know if you got the bolus of vasopressin. Um, so it becomes important in those settings. Mm -hmm. All right. So, so I'd love to ask a couple of, a couple of uh, kind of like pan back um, bigger level questions to, to bring this home, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, because you, you know, and I and I fully appreciate this about you. You're you're remarkably considered and deliberate, 
right? In what you say and what's based on the data and where you are, even in the analysis of the data and a refusal to get out there over the diving board, you know, and take a plunge, right? But now we get to, we get to close the book on your, on, on your lab hat and we to mix metaphors wildly and we get to put on the other hat, which is what, you know, basically what are you excited? Let's just assume um, no, no limits to fundings or approvals right for the next decade right where where would you where where are you dying to take the field what what are the what are the what's the sort of the true gold standard what is the big questions that light you up uh that you would love to know the answers to and let's just say without constraints 10 10 more years of research what would we know and what and what do you and what are your hunches about which way some of those studies would go yeah, my guess is it's this periorgasmic period is really uh, something I didn't know existed. I don't think anyone knows existed, and it's a potential actual discovery. You know, it's uh, along lines of I like to say when I was in school, I heard the scientist who discovered autoacoustic emissions speak, and so this is you know the ear doesn't just perceive sound and vibration, but also sends some sound out as a method of sharpening listening. Uh, and so you can actually measure these and some people you can even hear their autoacoustic emissions, crazy stuff. But he wow. dis- the discovery process is like when he realized this was real, you know, and he had data that finally kind of made that argument um, well. And so we're seeing all these hints, you know, we see it's like, oh, that GSR, you know, it's like right there and this is uh, here. And so, you know, in following those, I just like, if this is real, you know, if we can continue to see that there is this really unique state and period, and there are so many different ways we need to, to test and make sure that that's really the case and that it's reliable and, you know, what can we do to provoke it and what can we do to enhance it, um, that I think there's a lot of health potential there. You know, my guess is a climax is going to be useful for sleep probably, you know, that's, I, I like that. I do want to study and document that, but it's less interesting to me than this potential for like a whole new phase of sexual response that just doesn't exist in current models. Those, you know, sexual response that we still teach in like intro to human sexuality classes, you know, those were in the 1960s. It's time to revise them. <laughs> you know, We should have, we should have done the test at the time. Um, and so we need to understand like what is going on in the brain and the body because something unique is happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think we've seen it in profound ways in our biosignals. So uh, we also still don't know how orgasms are triggered ultimately. You know, there are lots of good theories. Uh, we ultimately, if I had to your uh, point, unlimited resources, I need to figure out that trigger. I want to understand how that happens, not just so I can be the monkey giving myself, you know, unlimited climaxes, um, but to see how to harness that, you know, if someone struggles with that, um, you know, I can still give them the benefit of the sleep benefit or, you know, whatever that may be that we find is useful that, you know, we're going to need that next step, you know, okay, this looks like it's helpful. Well, then how do we get there? How do you know you're in that state? How do you uh, provoke it reliably? What does it look like? How do you know it happened? Um, is there a way to enhance that? So all kinds of questions around like provoking that high arousal state that I think is going to be most useful for health moving forward. And that specifically is that that high arousal is the periorgasmic state that you're describing. Yeah. 
and and that 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 brings to mind. I mean, Robert Anton Wilson, and I, I think I quote him in the book, but like the prolonged genital that that the prolonged genital embrace is highly effective for radical brain change is a secret known both east and west through the years, right? And and you know the Western sex magic tradition talked about erotocomatose lucidity. The idea of by getting to that place, the, the, the periorgasmic, and then stretching it out, right, with all of the neurochemical priming, with the different, whether it's transient hyperfrontality or whatever is happening to the brain anatomy, what's happening to the rest. And I think you described it as a drop in sympathetic tone, mm-hmm. right? And if you can hang there and you can actually stretch that out intentionally, it is, an, it is a profound place, at least as these traditions report, um, for both inspiration and psychological mutation, you know, and potentially, you know, relational, um, you know, relational exploration. Um, What, what, what's your sense? So so let's take, let's take that kind of, you know, traditional historical cultural, like this has been going on for a long time before we set up labs to study it and your interest in it and where, you know, what might we get to as those paths cross, do you think? So my sense is whenever we talk about these kind of data, people always uh, typically will say, well, no kidding, you know, to your points, like that's edging or, well, yeah, I know that's the, you know, the uh, BDSM mind altered state. They have a specific term. It's not coming to mind, top of mind. Um, I I absolutely agree. I think this is already known, (laughs) but we can't use it until we can say like point to it and say, here it is. This is what's happening. You know, when you say you're in this uh, creative exploratory state and in some sense, it's right now, right, um, relegated to mysticism or uh, unusual, we'll say unusually typical sexual communities, uh, ones that were, there tend to be fewer practitioners. And I always like to joke, I say, how do you make our research matter to Mike Pence? And my apologies to Mr. Pence if this is not accurate for him, but, you know, conservative you guy. Make it, you make it about his mother. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so I say, like, you're never going to convince Mike Pence that you need to have more orgasms and that they should fund women's orgasm research. He doesn't care. He does not care. But if you say, you know, I can identify this unique brain state that you can experience through climax that happens to facilitate somnolence, you know, that's going to help our nation improve their health, reduce healthcare costs, you know, now you're talking Mike Pence's language and you might actually get him to masturbate, you know, so. Rub rub one out and call me in the morning. Right. So I see it a bit as like, um, you know, we're, uh, under no, um, you know, myth, we don't think we're discovering something new in the sense of like, oh, this has never been known before from a, a cultural perspective. It's that it's not scientifically known. You know, we, we have some sense people report these things, um, but people report all kinds of things, you know, <laughs> including things that are definitely not true. And so, um, so it's a matter of saying like, what is that thing? And by giving it a name and giving people a thing to point at, Uh, we can say, you know, this is useful, you know, and this is not fringe and it's not religious and it's not, you know, we can make it uh, concretized in a way that it becomes useful and something we can prescribe and talk about in treatments and interventions. So that's really my interest scientifically in it. You know, as I realize for whatever, you know, speculation and things promise it might hold uh, that at some level, you're going to get the buy-in and get interest in folks when you can point to it. You can say, I understand what's happening. We can document it. We can show you what that is and why it's going on. 
Beautiful. Okay, so now we're at the other end of that 10. You can even make it 20 years, right? And, and, and we're out of your lab. And, and all of the laser focus that you're devoting here to basically mechanisms of action, right? Exactly what you said. Like this is, it's in the cultural soup. It's gobbled, it's distorted, it's contested. It's all those things. But if we can get to the science, then we can really help people take this home, take this to heart. It can bridge cultural divides, you know, you know, re religiosity, different belief systems. It can help people, I'm imagining. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. That's the goal. All right. So now I'm going to ask you to be a little vulnerable, step outside your white lab coat, right? So 20 years from now, what is the world of human sexuality that you want to have played a part in helping bring forth? What is the world that you would speak to your 20 something daughter or your, or a granddaughter, mm -hmm. right? What, what is the world of sexual human sexuality that you would wish for them? Describe that. Yeah. I mean, I think I wish sexuality was more useful. Um, that is as it is, uh, you know, I think of sex or when I see, you know, talk to patients in this space, it's like when they go to have sex, they put on serious face, you know, they can't talk too much because they got to do the thing. And, um, you know, the, uh, however they think they need to interact to be a good lover or whatever that may be. Thank God that is such a limited perspective on what sex and sexuality is. You know, it's not uh, in the past, right? Just for reproduction. I think we're beyond that. You know, we're at least to um, it's important for most romantic relationships. That's great. <laughs> you know, don't, don't dispute that, but <laughs> we're not yet to the point of saying, and you know, it's that response is useful it's useful in the world. You know, if I am having trouble concentrating on a work issue, um, you know, maybe I want to be able to have a climax so I can focus. Uh, if that's going to be something that helps me stay on task, uh, I want to be able to, you know, talk to folks about like, um, you know, how can this be something that you use in your life, not to, not to reproduce, certainly not to connect with your partner, but because it's useful for something you want. You know, I want to be able to fall asleep and not uh, toss and turn for hours. Man, have I got your solution. And this is when you should do it to maximize the thing, you know? <laughs> and, uh, so I just feel like now, you know, it's um, as a therapist, you know, I uh, worked in behavioral medicine. It's crazy. You know, the sleep assessments and interventions, they ask nothing, you know, about sexuality or that interaction. And then uh, on the like treatment end, none of these mention masturbation. I was like, what are we doing? Like, this is like the most widely used um, thing. Like almost anyone, you know, if you ask them about it, there's been one questionnaire that asked about it and people are like, yes, I use masturbation to help me sleep. No kidding. You know, um, I want us to be able to have that conversation. And right now we can't. And I think the way, one way to do it is to have the data, you know, to say, look, this is grounded. You know, this is not goofiness. Um, I realize it sounds goofy. I realize the protocols are bizarre uh, that are going to get us there, that stuff we need to do uh, along that way, but it's worth it. You know, there, there are all these things that our body can do that we're not taking advantage of. And it's just because we have this very limited way of thinking about what the sexual response is and what it does. Uh, and we absolutely could use that endogenous response to enhance, facilitate, uh, I think, a variety of aspects of our lives, both you know, treatment oriented and just enhancement. Beautiful. So it sounds, it sounds like, you know, um, shining a light on the 
benefits of sexual fitness um, as an adjunct to the human experience and as, as, a, as a tool for both healing and connecting and easing, mm-hmm. easing the, the ailments and, and hardships that inevitably come our way. That's what I meant. Beautiful. <laughs> Beautiful. Well said. Well, Nicole, thank you. Um, it's, it's great to connect again, and I'm super stoked. Congratulations on your appointment to UCLA and, and your return <laughs> to the Ivory Tower. I, I hope this time you're not Rapunzel and, and, and stuck up there and that you, you, get, to, you get to have a, a, a nice uh, bat door to, to your own lab as well and, and keep pioneering uh, all of the work that you're doing. Um, and thank you for taking it head on. Um, you've, you've, been, you've been a lightning rod um, in the field and as, as your academic discipline intersects with uh, culture and even the culture wars. And I'm really glad to, to see that, you know, you've kept your head up and your heart open and you're, you're continuing to pursue all of your research goals um, undeterred and, and with increasing support. So super glad you're out there and, and thank you so much for making the time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.